4: This is Wins and Losses with Clay Travis. Clay talks with the most entertaining people in sports, entertainment, and business. Now, here's Clay Travis.
5: Welcome in Wins and Losses podcast, where we talk about, hopefully, really entertaining things in the world of sports, media, politics, business, you name it, with Hopefully, entertaining people. And I think you're really going to enjoy this guy, Mike Mulvihill. Uh, he is, I believe, at Michael Mulvahill on Twitter or at Mulvihill. We'll figure it out here in a sec. But anyway, I'll be tweeting out his Twitter handle. I would encourage you to follow him because I actually first started noticing Mike on Twitter years and years ago as he was publishing some of the data that he was seeing in the world of sports. And if you are interested in the business of sports or media You are going to absolutely love everything about this conversation. So I want to go ahead and welcome in Mike Mulvihill. Uh, Mike, what is your official title at this point in time?
6: Uh, I am the head of strategy and analytics for Fox Sports.
5: So that is a really interesting and awesome job title. And as we unpack exactly what you do, I think people are going to see why that is. Uh, But I don't know. It occurred to me. I mean, I've known you for years now, but it occurred to me that I don't really know that much about how you ended up getting the job that you got. So I believe I'm correct that you grew up in the Pittsburgh area. And uh, at what point did you recognize? Where'd you go to school? And kind of what was the first job that kind of got your foot in the door in the sports industry?
6: Uh, That's a great question. and First of all, thanks for uh, inviting me to be on the podcast. Really excited to uh, get into a little bit of my background and and the things that we talk about every day uh, here at this job. Um, In my case, you know, I started working in non-commercial radio when I was 15. I did grow up in Pittsburgh, as you mentioned, uh, and I started working at the University of Pittsburgh's student radio station um, prior to my junior year in high school. It was a situation where a lot of those kids went home for the summer, they had a hard time keeping the station on the air, and so they needed younger kids who would bond volunteer um, to just become DJs and read the news and read sports clips and do whatever they needed um, to keep the station going 24 hours and so I got into this environment where I was working in radio every day, and I really got hooked um, immediately. It was just one of those things where sometimes as a young person, you walk into a, a professional setting, and you just know instantaneously that it's where you want to be for a long time, and that, that was the way I felt. And so at a really young age, I felt like I wanted to work in broadcasting and media in some capacity. I went to the University of Missouri, where they traditionally have great uh, media programs. I worked at the college radio station there. I ran the college radio station for a time. Um, I actually got very lucky while I was at Mizzou, I put together a concert that was a reunion um, of a 1970s band called Big Star with uh, Alex Chilton, who um, sang the letter and was in the box tops in the 60s. Relatively obscure band, but a band that had a lot of influence, and that reunion show generated a fair amount of attention, Um, just a really lucky thing, right place, right time. And coming out of that show, I was able to get an internship with Fox in Los Angeles, So prior to my last year at Mizzou, um, I came out here and I interned in what's called a current programming department, thinking that what I wanted to do was work on episodic TV and work on sitcoms and dramas and, you know, have the kind of job um, where you're involved in the creative process and developing series television. And that's what I really firmly believed I wanted to do. Um, Went back to Mizzou for my last year, graduated, came to New York, graduated into kind of a tough job market um, and was only able to get a job in New York working in media research and market research, which is dealing with the ratings and audience measurement and trying to understand um, what, People are watching and why, really not a creative job at all. And to my complete surprise, um, I kind of got hooked on that too. I mean, I found that I really enjoyed working with the data. I enjoyed identifying um, situations where the perception of the business was at odds with the reality of the data and trying to figure out what drove that gap in perception and and what the truth really was. Uh, And I also found that I wanted to get out of entertainment and and get into sports. You know, this was at a time where Fox had just completed its first season of the NFL. We had just acquired the rights to Major League Baseball, Um, and it was pretty clear to me that the people, at least in this company, who were working in sports were having a lot more fun than the people who were working in entertainment. And, yes. you know, this is the mid-90s. <clears throat> at that time, there were no sports marketing degree programs. You know, people who were working in sports were generally coming from communications or journalism uh, majors. And if you just had a passion for sports and you could write a little bit and you were willing to just grind for a long time, you know, there's a certain process of natural selection in this business where it doesn't really matter where you went to school or what your last name is you know if you get your foot in the door and you're just willing to keep grinding and keep working um, the people who want it the most I think tend to find a way forward Uh, and that's what happened to me
5: Uh, it's really so much interesting stuff in there and so I want to go back to you going in at 15 years old and working at a college radio station Were you a big radio guy, like listening to sports on radio? Did that partly drive you? Was it music that you were listening to on the radio? What was it that initially took you to, I think you said the University of Pittsburgh, uh, to be able to work there during that summer? What was the impetus?
6: Uh, It was a lot of what you just mentioned. It was also that I didn't want to have a regular job. You know, it was one of these things where you're a teenager and your dad or my dad was pressuring me to go, you know, work at a fast food restaurant or work at a Baskin Robbins and and actually make a little. Bring a little bit of money into the house. Um, And that didn't seem that interesting to me. And so, this opportunity came up to work on a volunteer basis in radio. Uh, I thought it sounded a lot more interesting, a lot more fun. Um, I was able to sell my family on the idea that it might lead to something uh, bigger and better, which it did. Uh, And I did, I loved the music. Um, I loved that the station had a daily news and sports show that I could be a part of. You know, Pittsburgh obviously has a really strong sports culture and a strong sports media culture. So, I grew up kind of wanting to be part of that in some way and not really understanding how I ever could be. Uh, And as soon as I walked into that station, I think a light bulb went off and I felt like there actually was a path for me to do this or do something like it for a living. I think for a lot of us who work in media, there's a moment where you sort of realize that people actually get paid to do this and it's a little bit uh, overwhelming. Like you can't believe that this is actually a career option. And as soon as you understand it, you don't want to do anything else.
5: It is really fascinating. So now, did you grow up a fan of the Pirates, of the Penguins, of the Steelers, all those teams evenly? Or how would you say you assessed your sports fandom as a kid?
6: Uh, I grew up as a fan of the Pirates and Steelers and of uh, University of Pittsburgh football and basketball. I mean, I grew up at a time where the Pirates had some of the most charismatic teams of our lifetime, is that we are family Pirates team that won the World Series in 1979. And I grew up around the the Steel Curtain Steelers and the Pitt Panthers teams that had Dan Marino. Um, So that was a really vibrant sports culture at that time. Um, It was a pretty favorable place to grow up where your, your teams are having a lot of success and it encourages you to sort of stay with your sports fandom. Uh, But Pittsburgh in the 70s, it's a great sports town now. But at that time, it was this coming together of... Really successful teams, really compelling, charismatic athletes, a local economy that at that time was really thriving. I mean, Pittsburgh was one of the great working class and middle class cities in the country, which I think fosters um, a great sports culture. And all of those things came together to make me a a fan for life.
5: Let uh, Let me go to when you go to Missouri. Were you? Did you have a, like a cultural shock at all going from Pittsburgh to Columbia, Missouri, or did you immediately fit in when you went away to college?
6: Uh, no, I had a cultural shock, and I wanted to have a cultural shock. You know, I, when I grew up in Pittsburgh, I grew up um, very much in the center city. You know, it was an urban environment. Um, which I appreciated a lot. I loved having a a city childhood, but when it came time to go to school, um, I felt like it was my one opportunity to have a really different experience and live in a small town, live in the Midwest. You know, Mizzou is one of those kind of classically all-American big school experiences, Uh, and it was really, really appealing to me. So it was a culture shock, but it was a culture shock that I sought out. I wanted it.
4: Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific.
3: I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: We're talking to Michael Mulvahill. This is the Wins and Losses podcast. I'm Clay Travis. Okay, so you get that first job and you start to realize you know what? I kind of like diving into this, these numbers and sometimes finding counterintuitive uh, lessons from the data that might not necessarily be common sense, might not certainly be conventional wisdom. Do you remember the first time you discovered something that surprised you and that other people were impressed you knew in that job?
6: Yeah, and I don't think it was anything earth-shattering, or I don't know if it's a story that would really make a great impression on people, but there were a couple instances early on um, where the data was telling me something other than what the perception of the industry was. You know, one of the perceptions at that time was that John Madden, who was the the most prominent NFL broadcaster, probably the the greatest to ever do it, I think a lot of people would agree, and there was this perception that part of the value of having John Madden as your on-air talent was that he could keep viewers tuned into a blowout game because they would continue to watch just because... John was so entertaining, and, and he was that entertaining. The data didn't back it up. Uh, and it was interesting to me that very senior executives, people who had infinitely more experience and were making a lot more money um, and having a lot more success, had a perception that was not in any way backed up by the numbers. I don't. There wasn't really anything for me to do with that data, but it was interesting just to recognize that there was a disconnect there. Um, it was interesting to notice that as the base baseball rights holder, we would sometimes get excited about a pitching matchup that we had. And what you would come to find was that the ratings didn't pop based on a great pitching matchup any more than they would for kind of a generic pitching matchup. I came to learn years later that um, Bill James had actually done a very similar analysis that was based on attendance rather than TV ratings and came to the same conclusion. The pitching matchup didn't drive attendance at all. Again, just another case where you feel like, gee, the whole business believes one thing, and I'm looking at numbers that tell me something else. So who's wrong here? And I think when you start to identify um, those kinds of circumstances, you can get hooked on it, and it can be a little bit exciting to feel like I've got a data set here that's telling me something that maybe a lot of other people haven't figured out yet. And I I still kind of get a charge out of coming up with some kind of insight or, or nugget of information that gives me a window of understanding that maybe some other people haven't figured out yet.
5: How do you find that people respond when their conventional wisdom is challenged? Because sometimes when you've got the data to back you up, people can feel like you're attacking them when you're saying, hey, you know that thing that you believe, which is that pitching matchups drive ratings or John Madden is so good at his job that people could keep listening to him. It doesn't actually stand up when the data is actually analyzed. How have you found people responding to things like that?
6: Yeah, I think one of the most fortunate things that has happened to me in my career, and certainly that happened to me at a young age, was that I got to work at Fox Sports at a time when it was run by a guy named David Hill, who was the founding president of Fox Sports and had previously been an executive in the UK and Australia. And David is one of the most creative people to ever work in this business. He certainly has one of the most active and most restless minds and imaginations that I've ever been around. Uh, And at that time, where David was at the top of this business and the top of this company, and I was nobody, I was a 24-year-old research analyst who couldn't possibly matter less, um, he was willing to hear those things out. And he was really encouraging of hearing data and facts and ratings information that maybe ran counter to what he already thought. And I think if I had had a different boss at that time, I might not have been long for this business, uh, but David was really encouraging. And Clay, as you know from you know, all the work that you've done with us at Fox, this building is littered with people who had experiences like that with David Hill, people who you know, probably would not be in this business today had they not gotten the encouragement that they got from David at a young age. So that was really pivotal to me, and it really shows like what a difference um, the right boss and an open-minded boss at a young age can, can make
5: and also what culture is at a job right where you can be a 24 year old and if you've got information that you think is helpful people in positions of power will listen to it and i think that's a kind of the story of fox in general there are a lot of people like you who came in as 22-year-olds or even younger and started working there. I mean, you look at Brad Zager, you can look at Eric Shanks. I mean, guys who just got into business at an insanely early age and just grinded at some of the lowest jobs imaginable until they rose up like you did and like those guys have to pretty high positions at the company. I mean, I think it's Eric Shanks used to do, who now runs Fox Sports, used to be like the PA, the production assistant, who would pick up Terry Bradshaw and some of the young guys at the very earliest days of uh, of Fox Sports and drive them around around.
6: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And when I talk about this business having a certain survival of the fittest element, that's really what I mean, You know, that there were guys like Shanks and Zager, uh, Jacob Allman, um, hopefully me, um, who started at a really junior level and were able to just keep grinding and make it to the jobs that we have today, partly on desire and determination, but also because we were part of a culture that uh, encouraged young people with that attitude to thrive. And I think if there's anything that defines the culture of this company now it's that those people you just mentioned who have risen to pretty senior positions want to keep that dynamic in place you know we want this to be a place where a young person at 23 or 24 can walk into the office of somebody who's a president or an evp and have an idea or a way of thinking that's different uh, and really be heard and make an impact that's the way it should work
5: first time i saw your name and started to pay attention to your work was you wrote what i would say is a counterintuitive narrative diving into the numbers behind Major League Baseball and explaining why the baseball business was more sound than a lot of people thought. And let me just kind of, for a background for people out there, in general, and I'm curious if you're going to buy into this hypothesis I'm going to lay out, and then I'll let you kind of dive into it. In general, I think that the data you presented shows that Major League Baseball is incredibly popular on a local level. In fact, if you compare Major League Baseball teams, for instance, to NBA franchises in the same market, The Major League Baseball team is, by and large, wildly popular. Where baseball struggles on a national level is pretty much every NFL team. If you're a sports fan, you know a couple of guys that play on that team and maybe a couple of their stories. Certainly in the NBA, there are six or seven or eight names that are so big, they kind of dominate on the national level. Baseball is regionally stronger than almost any sport, but nationally does not dominate in the same way, and so we don't talk about it as much as we probably should. Is that roughly accurate as the data Like, kind of spoke to you? And what would you say about baseball, maybe, that would be counterintuitive to people out there listening right now?
6: So that's a lot to respond to. I mean, I think that the way that we tend to evaluate television programming and media content is things that are strong nationally and that air once a week Um tend to be viewed a little bit more favorably because that's the model of television programming that we all grew up with. You know, we all grew up with a hit television show being something that aired once a week in prime time, whether that was a sitcom or a drama or Monday Night Football. And so it's a way of thinking about content that everybody's really comfortable with. And that way of thinking about content very much favors the NFL model and somewhat less so favors the college football model and the NBA model, which as you say, even though they play 82 games a year, that is very, very much a league that's driven by five to ten superstar personalities that can drive a national rating. Baseball, because it is so, um, its popularity is so locally driven and it's, it's so market to market, doesn't really, um, is not really advantaged by a way of thinking about content that's all about national and weekly programming. So you have to adjust your thinking a little bit and evaluate baseball in terms of The local viewership that it generates 162 times a year. And when you convert those local ratings into minutes of consumption in a a market like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, wherever, what you come to realize is that people in those cities spend more of their time watching Major League Baseball than they spend watching literally anything else. Um, And if you can get people to kind of reframe their thinking so that you're thinking more locally and more five or six days a week, which in television, terms would be more like a syndication model uh, rather than thinking in terms of national and once a week. I I think it does make sense to people, and we have been able to persuade a lot of people who cover this business for a living, who buy advertising, who invest in content, um, that there's a much greater value to the baseball business than maybe was previously understood. I actually think that, and it's not just me making that argument, I mean, it's being made by people at the commissioner's office every day, people who work for the regional sports networks, but I think we've had a lot of success. In helping people reframe their thinking around baseball and why it's a lot more successful as a television property than maybe was understood as recently as five years ago.
4: Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.
3: I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: I want to go into the decision that you made and uh, and and certainly that Fox has made to build a college football pregame show that airs on Fox and to follow it up with what you guys are calling Big Noon Saturday, a big game called by Joel Klatt, Gus Johnson, uh Jenny Taft. How do you look at the data and decide we're going to go after noon in college football, and then what goes into that? How do you have the hypothesis? What data do you – like what pricks that interest initially? And then how does something like that end up happening?
6: Sure. So let's start by just kind of laying out the landscape of college football. I mean, that's a sport where the Disney networks, ABC, ESPN, and ESPN2, um, really have a dominant position and and have for many, many years. You know, they're involved in all five of the power conferences. Um, They've had a powerful presence in primetime now for probably 10 years or more. Um, And so we're coming into the collegiate space, or we came into the collegiate space I guess it was six seasons ago, um, facing a really powerful competitor. And then in addition to those Disney networks, CBS obviously has their relationship with the SEC, which is really powerful and generally is in that late afternoon window. And NBC has six or seven Notre Dame games a year. So it's a marketplace that's very crowded, and your competitors are extremely well-established. And so even though our conference relationships are excellent, the portfolio of content that we have, is terrific, um, it's hard to break through. And I think what we were finding was that when we would put our best games on in prime time, um, we were just walking into a very crowded, competitive marketplace. And you would hear from fans. You would hear on social media. I would hear it from you personally that the most frustrating thing as a college football fan would be to show up at 3.30 on a Saturday afternoon. And there were five good games on five different networks, whereas just a few hours earlier, there was nothing to watch. So, so um, true. That's That seems like a market inefficiency, right? That seems like something that we can exploit. Simultaneous to that, our Big Ten contract um, prohibits us from playing, uh, from playing as many games in prime time as we might otherwise late in the season. You know, the, the weather gets cold, the calendar turns to November. Some of those Big Ten campuses, they don't want to host games under the lights. And so we're required to play big games, including Ohio State, Michigan, early in the day. Uh, And what we found was that we were having a lot of success with those games that we were required to play early in the day. Um, Sometimes what you are required to do turns out to have been a pretty good idea all along. And so I felt, and we felt as a company, that we were seeing enough success with the games that we were required to play outside of prime time that it probably made sense to go even further with that strategy and see if we could just – orient our collegiate brand around the early part of the day, which meant going out and upgrading our studio show, creating the pregame show that's now called Big Noon Kickoff, um, and having that lead into our best game of the day, which typically this season, the noon Eastern game is our best game of the day. You know, I had felt for some time that every other network involved in college football had an identity. You know, CBS's identity is the best game from the best conference. You know, we can debate whether the SEC is still the best conference. I know you believe that it is. But that's a very clear identity to put forward to people. NBC's identity is all the iconography and and history that comes with Notre Dame football. That's a very clear identity. And the Disney identity is just volume. I mean, they're almost like a public utility uh, of college athletics. You can just turn them on any time and know that you're going to get something relevant and something watchable. Well, what was our identity? You know, we didn't really know what it was, and now I think we've been able to establish this narrative that our identity is that the first place you should go when you get up on a college football Saturday is Fox. We want to be the first must-see game of the day. Uh, And I think it's working, you know, to kind of get into the ratings a little bit. We're five weeks into the season. Um, Our college football in general is up 35 percent. Our college football games at noon Eastern are up 70 percent. And this is at a point in the season where the sport generally across every network is flat with where it was a year ago. So the sport in general is kind of going sideways, and we've been able to take a big step forward just because we've rethought the way that we use those assets, and we saw an opportunity to take advantage of the early part of the day, and I think it's working out really well.
5: How do you pick games? That's a question I think that people ask all the time. Uh, The scheduling of – you mentioned that Fox has got the Big 12, the Pac-12, the Big 10 – uh, certainly, ESPN has got a lot. NBC, Notre Dame, and SEC is on CBS. How do you, uh, in a given week, how does the draft process work when you're not? When you, it's easy if you have every game, right? Like so, uh, if you like, the, for instance, the uh, ESPN I believe has virtually every ACC game, so they know that they've got every ACC game. They can schedule it and work about where those games are going to air. But when you're dealing with multiple schools in situations like that, how do, you, uh, how do you make decisions and how far out are you picking games? Like how does that work?
6: So it's a multi-step process. And the first step happens in the spring where we and Disney – we'll sit down and have a draft in which we um, pick windows. We're not actually picking games, but we're picking what the selection order will be in each week of the season as the year goes on. So to kind of put that in more relatable terms, when we do our Big Ten draft, we have the first pick in the Big Ten, and we don't say we're taking Ohio State-Michigan, but we say we'll take the number one selection on November 30th. And which is Ohio State-Michigan, yes. That the massive likelihood is that you will later take Ohio State-Michigan, but what you're actually selecting is the right... To select that matchup later in the year so we have the number one pick we'll take November 30th they'll come back and take October 26th then we come back and take November 23rd and you go through this process of just dividing up the dates so by the time you get through that draft you know who has picks one through seven uh, on every week of the season then as you get closer to the season you actually fill out those boxes with the matchups themselves and what that allows you to do is it gives you the flexibility to react to events on the field um, as they happen. You know, certain teams overperform expectations, other teams obviously underperform expectations, and instead of being locked into a game that you thought was going to be strong in March or April, you can react to that as it happens, and that process is managed um, by a guy on our team named Derek Crocker uh, and a small team that he has that focuses exclusively on collegiate sports, and they spend all their time just gaming out these draft scenarios and what will happen if we take this game number one and then ESPN takes this one number two, what's left for us after that. It's a really fascinating process. If you're a a passionate fan of college football, um, it's one of the most fun jobs you could possibly have. I always say that the college football draft process is um, the world's greatest fantasy football draft. It It
5: should be on television.
6: Right. Well, it's the, it's a great fantasy football draft. It just happens to cost five hundred million dollars to play <laughs> instead of fifty bucks. Um, but then, as we go through the year, you know, we'll get into situations where I think November sixteenth of this season is a great example. Michigan State, Michigan is there. Wisconsin, Nebraska is there. If you had been asked in April, you would have said Michigan State-Michigan is probably the number one game on that day because Wisconsin just blew Michigan out. That might change your thinking. Wisconsin might still be alive for a spot in the playoff by the time we get to November 16th. And so because we're not locked into a matchup, but we've selected the right to make a certain selection on that date, you know, we can adjust and adapt as we see results come in throughout the year.
5: Is the selection process occurring via phone, like everybody sitting around a table with a speakerphone, or are they in the same room?
6: Um, One year we did it in the same room, and we found that it was actually more... Efficient to just do it on the phone because it can be a slow process. Like yeah. The reason it wouldn't make for good television is that there can be long periods where you're just thinking about what your next move is and where you want to go next in the schedule. In our case, we're drafting our three conferences simultaneously, so you might make um, a couple Big Twelve selections and then a couple Pac Twelve selections and then four Big Ten selections, and they're they're all intertwined. You know, each conference affects the others, uh, and so. that can be a really slow Um, deliberate uh, process to go through and it just doesn't make that much sense for us to all be in the same room like we found that it's just easier to do it uh, via teleconference but we do have a lot of fun with it it's an opportunity for us to sit with our talent and get their opinions Um, they all seem to find the process really interesting you know this is obviously our first season working with Urban Meyer and he provided a lot of insight for us into each of the Big Ten schools and it was really a conversation that we had with Urban Um, that led us to select the Army-Michigan game on September 7th over the Cincinnati-Ohio State game. You know, all things being equal, Ohio State is probably a little bit better ratings draw than Michigan is nationally. I mean, they're both elite brands, but Ohio State is probably a little stronger. But in that case, because of the conversation we had had with Urban, in which he really stressed the difficulty of preparing for that triple option offense, we went ahead and took the Army Michigan game, and you know what happened next. I think Ohio State beat Cincinnati by 40, and the Army Michigan game went to overtime. It turned out to be one of the most interesting games of the season so far. So, you know, that's a case where you really benefit from getting your talent involved in the process.
5: How do you, much do you see brands? You were talking about some of the counterintuitive wisdom that you might have picked up early on with John Madden and uh, and with baseball pitching. How much do brands themselves matter? So, you, you mentioned like Ohio State and Michigan. The audience is primarily coming to watch Ohio State play in a game against Cincinnati. The audience is primarily coming uh, to watch Michigan play in a game against Army. What are the best brands in college football just in terms of delivering uh, audience and also in the NFL? Like just teams, irrespective of who they're playing, what, how much do teams move the needle? Um,
6: Brands matter enormously. Uh, I think you almost cannot overstate the importance of brands because not everybody is following the league or following the college game as closely as you or I or people who would be listening to this podcast. You know, the majority of the audience are people who are following it in a very casual way uh, and they're not clued into teams that are overperforming expectations. What they know is that when they think of the big 10, they think of Ohio state and Michigan first. When they think of the SEC, they think of Alabama first, and maybe Georgia and LSU after that. Or in other years, it's been Florida. Um, brands are incredibly important, and I think we have a constant debate about the value of, po- excuse me, powerful brands who are maybe underperforming on the field versus uh, less powerful brands that are actually winning games. <clears throat> excuse me, that are winning games and delivering on the field real-life example that we just faced. In the Pac-12, we had USC and Washington. And on the same day, we had Washington State and Utah. Now, in terms of performance on the field, the better football game was likely to be Washington State and Utah. The better brands inarguably, are USC and Washington. And we had a lot of back and forth about that. And ultimately, we decided to go ahead and put the USC-Washington game on the broadcast network and put the Washington State-Utah game on FS1. I think in that particular case, that was the right decision. Um, But it's a constant debate because there are cases where the weaker brand is so much stronger on the field um, that it does carry more weight than potentially a stronger brand. You know, in the NFL, I don't think it would be any surprise prize, um, that the Cowboys are the most powerful brand nationally, and then there's a second tier that I think includes uh, the Packers, uh, the Bears, the Pittsburgh Steelers. And by now, you'd have to say the Patriots. I mean, there was a time, you know, in our life as fans when the Patriots were actually one of the weakest brands in the league, but they've now been so good for so long. Um, that I think you'd have to consider them as being solidly on that second tier of NFL brands, at least for as long as Brady and Belichick are are with the organization.
5: In an era when there is almost an infinite number of entertainment options, are brands becoming more valuable because they cut through the noise?
6: Probably, yes. Um, I think that's probably fair. And look, a brand can be a school, um, a brand can be a team, and a brand can be an individual. Like in the case of the NBA, I think they are driven more by individual stars than college football or or NFL football. Uh, But those individual stars are brands just the same as the star on the side of the Dallas Cowboys helmet is a brand. Um, I do think that, as you say, we're in a world of virtually infinite choice, virtually infinite flexibility in terms of how, when, and where you can consume your media content. I think you hear anecdotally all the time that people feel almost overwhelmed um, by the degree of choice that's out there. And so it's useful to be able to simplify that process for people. And I think what's really simple is Packers-Cowboys at 425 on a Sunday afternoon. You, know, you don't have to be paying that close of attention to understand that that's kind of a cool, watchable matchup. So I, I tend to agree with the premise. I think brands become more important all the time.
3: I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your
4: podcast.
5: We're talking to Michael Mulvahill. I'm Clay Travis. This is the Wins and Losses Podcast. In that world of infinite options, Reed Hastings recently said that he thinks live television is basically going to become news and sports. Do you think that thesis is correct?
6: I mean, I think it becomes more correct every year, and that's a way of thinking that we um, talk about Within Fox Sports, a lot uh, that the world of video content is separating into live and on-demand, and the on-demand marketplace uh, is increasingly controlled by companies like Reed's and companies that allow consumers to choose the content that they want anytime that they want it. I mean, that's an environment that's all about um, consumer empowerment and, and flexibility. And then on our side, we're part of a marketplace of content that demands to be viewed in real time, and I think that is primarily or, or almost entirely um, premium sports and 24-hour news. So I I tend to agree with that. I think it becomes more challenging all the time um, to do entertainment content in an environment that is not on demand. There's still a business there. You know, there are still tens of millions of people um, watching entertainment programming on traditional television every night, so it hasn't disappeared, and I don't think it's going to truly disappear anytime soon, but I think it's a reality that the the business bifurcates more into that on-demand world and the live world. Um, literally every quarter and it's to the benefit of companies like Netflix and it's to the benefit of brands like Fox Sports, ESPN, Fox News, CNN, brands that are all about content that you have to see as it happens which by the way if you're watching the content as it happens that means you're not avoiding the advertising and from strictly a business point of view um, I think that's one of the most compelling arguments that we have for the future of our content.
5: How much do you see people making decisions between news and sports. In other words, you talked about like a casual fan out there might not know what's going on in particular with Ohio State or Michigan or the Dallas Cowboys in a given year, but they know those brands and they're more likely to watch those brands because of, you know, associational relationships, I guess, that would be in their head that I know this is a big game because it involves so-and-so or at least it's something that they feel familiar with, which makes them want to watch When there are big news events, are there very many people who sit down in front of their television and decide, hey, instead of watching an NFL game today, I'm going to go flip over to MSNBC or CNN or Fox News and watch the latest news of the day? Do you see a lot of those people existing?
6: Yes, I think that absolutely happens every day. Um, you know, you You'll remember that in 2016 and 2017, NFL viewership was actually down by pretty noticeable percentages, by high single-digit percentages. It was still the most powerful content in TV, um, but the league was on kind of a declining trend in those seasons. And I think the number one reason why was because the election of 2016 sucked up so much oxygen and took up so much public interest that it affected everything else in the television environment. And then obviously the result of the 2016 election was so surprising. And the first year of the Trump presidency um, was so eventful. I think news interest at that time was you know, probably the highest that it's ever been in peacetime, right? Like that's kind of an interesting hypothesis, I guess, that for news interest to be any higher than it was from the twenty sixteen election up through the say eighteen months that followed, I don't know that you can have a faster um news cycle and, and still be in a peacetime scenario. So I think that definitely impacted sports viewing during those two seasons. More recently you know, we just had our first Thursday night football game of the season last week. Um, Eagles went to Green Bay. Game turned out to be terrific. We were up 21% over the previous year. The reason we were up 21% wasn't only because the game was a quality game between pretty compelling brands, it was also because. Last year's Thursday night football game on the same week was the day of the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, um, which went on for hours and obviously galvanized the attention of the country and resulted in millions more people watching cable news instead of watching our Thursday night football game. You take that big news story out of the mix, those people migrate back to football. All of a sudden, we're up 21%. So I think the two are, are absolutely correlated um, every
5: week. So you get nervous about that, thinking about 2020. Obviously, you have a big investment in sports programming, and you can't control what happens in 2020. But it seems like, as we're talking now, a little over a year out that 2020 would probably challenge potentially 2016 for the craziness, the zaniness of it, and that might pull eyeballs away from whatever big sporting events are going on.
6: Yeah, and, and look, I don't want to pretend to be a, a political prognosticator, but the news cycle is moving so fast right now that it's it's hard to speculate with any confidence uh, on what the the campaign might look like a year from now. I mean, we could be looking at um, unexpected candidates, unexpected nominees. You know, who knows where we could be? But I think the premise that you're coming from is the correct one that we should expect um, the election cycle to have an impact on all. All other content, including but not limited to sports. Now, the better news for us is that, A at this company, we're also partnered with the leading brand in 24-hour news. And so even if there's a certain risk factor there for sports, there's also a tremendous upside for our news business. And I think even if there's um, a potential impact to viewership, the amount of money that we expect to see spent uh, in political advertising next year is so significant that we may be headed for a situation, and this isn't just Fox. I mean, this is everybody who's associated with pre sports we might be headed for an election cycle that is not necessarily good for viewership but good for revenue like it wouldn't surprise me if that's the way it played out
5: do you think at all i mean i'm kind of fascinated by this just to think in 2020 when everything is so politicized i haven't made a, paid a lot of attention but I'll, I'll say for example in the 2018 midterms last year I noticed on the SEC network that a ton of the Senate candidates were buying games, you know? So in other words, you had a competitive Senate race in Missouri. Uh, the Senate candidates in Missouri were buying ads during those games. Uh, is, is that a big I don't even know I can't think necessarily is it typical that candidates spend a lot of money on ads during NFL and college football games or is that a sign of just there being so much money that it's kind of something that they buy on top of everything else do you, do you know what I'm asking like is, it, does it index highly for sports to get bought for by political candidates
6: Um, On the national level, not necessarily. Like There wouldn't be that much um, opportunity for a candidate in a midterm, in a congressional race, to buy the NFL or buy college football nationally. There's just no need for them to reach a national audience. What does exist is a great opportunity to reach people via sports on your regional sports networks, whether you're buying Major League Baseball, the NBA, uh, or the NHL. I think that is actually an underutilized asset, and I think I can now say that with a little bit of objectivity because Fox no longer owns those RSNs, so I I hope I'm not being just a homer. I I think there's some objectivity in saying that the audiences that are delivered by pro sports on um, RSNs all over the country, those audiences correlate really strongly with likely voters, right? Like, those sports audiences skew a little bit older, they tend to be a little bit more affluent. Better educated um, in general, those sports audiences are about two thirds male, one third female, which might correlate slightly better with um, likely voters, but i don 't know that that makes a huge impact. but you know if you 're thinking in terms of your likeliest voters being people who are a little older, a little more affluent, and a little better educated, and I think that 's a pretty well documented fact. There's no better place to be than in the local MLB team or the local NBA team. And I think some of the smarter campaigns have figured that out. um, But I feel like there's still a lot of runway there that the, the campaigns could take much better advantage of the RSNs.
5: One of the questions that gets asked all the time is, who has the best fans in America? What cities care about sports the most? You look into the data. And the data kind of tells you some interesting stories, right? For instance, I am very confident in saying, based on the data that I've seen, no city in America loves college football more than Birmingham, Alabama, right? Like Birmingham over-indexes off the charts for virtually every college football game in America. I think from your data... The NFL is more popular, I believe it's true, in New Orleans than any city in America. What, am I correct in those two in your mind? And what other city data have you looked at and just found to be fascinating?
6: Um, I would agree with you that Birmingham is probably your strongest college football market. And yeah, I believe New Orleans is the strongest NFL market and the strongest overall football market, where if you're looking at the viewing that's being done on both Saturdays and Sundays, I don't think there's a market that shows up for both the college game and the pro game pro game um, to the extent that New Orleans does. I mean, they'll do close to a 50 rating. And what that means is that close to 50% of all the homes in a market are tuned into the game. They'll do close to a 50 rating for the Saints. And then they'll go out and do a 20 or a 25 for non-Saints games. And they'll also do a 25 for an LSU game or an Alabama game on Saturday. I don't think there's another city in the country um, that has that kind of all-weekend consumption of football. And, look, there are a lot of cities in this country that are passionate about their NFL team or passionate about their local university, but I really do believe that in the post-Katrina world, the relationship between the Saints and the city of New Orleans um, is unique, and it, it has helped to drive um, football interest and Saints interest to a level that no other city can match I just think that what that team meant to the city after Katrina and what it meant to them uh, in their Super Bowl season a couple years later uh, has really carried through and created a a unique circumstance
5: what does the Super Bowl data tell you Fox has got the Super Bowl this year it's in Miami Uh, I'm fascinated by what you can learn from the data for the Super Bowl for instance I'll start with this question how representative of the American audience in general is the Super Bowl audience? In other words, does it pretty much perfectly mirror America in general? Or what audiences skew more popular with the Super Bowl than maybe are represented in the country?
6: Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, television consumption is always going to skew older than the general population. So there's a limit to how much a television audience can truly reflect the American population. It's always going to be a little bit older. But if you accept that premise, the Super Bowl probably comes closest or comes closer to to reflecting the, the cross-section of the American population than anything else that's out there. Um, the audience is more female than it is for a regular season game. It's significantly more younger than it is for a regular season game. Um, the halftime entertainment tends to bring in audiences and demographics that are not week in week out football viewers that helps it make that helps to make the Super Bowl a little bit more representative of the entire country I mean I really think that and and maybe I'm being a little bit lofty about it because I've been close to it for a long time and it's an event that means a lot to me but I think the Super Bowl is more reflective of the character and the fabric of this country than any other day forget about any other television event Super Bowl Sunday reflects where we are as a country more accurately than the 4th of July, more accurately than Thanksgiving, more accurately than any holiday that you want to name. It's the truest representation of who we are, and that's why it's so exciting for us to be able to be the people that get to get to present it once every couple years.
5: So when the Super Bowl airs, how much do the teams matter that are playing? And I'm not telling you to be a fan of the teams, but if I told you right now fox's super bowl is going to have the cowboys and the patriots is that the best possible draw from a purely team perspective and how much do teams matter in terms of audience
6: they matter a little they don't matter as much as they matter in the world series or as much as they matter in the nba finals where i think you can have a huge degree of variability between one matchup and another um But I I wouldn't say that they don't matter at all. No matter who gets to the Super Bowl, it's going to be, by an enormous margin, the most-watched television program of the year. I mean, by 50 million people, it'll be the most-watched television program of the year. And that's true even if the matchup is Jaguars and Panthers, right? But there is some variability where you know having the Cowboys in the game might get you an extra 5%. Having the Cowboys against... The Steelers or, you know, another prominent AFC brand might get you a couple extra percent on top of that. So I do think there are matchups that are better than others, but there really is no matchup that would scare you or make you think that the bottom is going to fall out of the Super Bowl. I think this year there's an interesting debate to be had, and I'm not sure that I have a conclusive opinion on it, um, The Patriots are probably the strongest brand on the AFC side, but because they've become so familiar on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, it's possible that having Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs in the game might be better for viewership than having another year of Brady and Belichick. Again, I think it's debatable. You really could argue it from either side, um, but I would say any combination of Cowboys, Packers, Bears on the NFC side, Patriots or Chiefs on the AFC side um, would get you really into a stratosphere and, and get you into a place where you could threaten viewership records.
5: I think this will surprise people. You mentioned the halftime show. Sometimes the halftime show is the highest rated part of the Super Bowl and I think that data reflects that that sometimes is the case that stuns me, or stunned me when I saw it as a sports fan. Did that surprise you when you saw it?
6: Yeah, and that's a relatively recent thing. I mean, I think it's only in the last five to ten years that the halftime acts um, have been booked with an eye toward. You know, an audience that maybe isn't watching the NFL every week. You know, we went through a period where the halftime acts were pretty straightforward guitar guitar rock acts, starting with the U2 show in New Orleans. That's now almost 20 years ago, and then there was this run of U2, Springsteen, Tom Petty, The Who. I mean, I'm I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but those are acts that are probably resonant to an audience that tends to watch the NFL every week, and then. And we've moved since then into this period where the acts have become Beyonce, Katy Perry, Bruno Mars, and we find that there is an audience that will show up at halftime, watch the halftime show, and then hopefully stick around for the second half, and it can create a dynamic where the highest-rated part of the game uh, is the halftime show. So yeah, that's that's a pretty recent change.
5: And in theory, for Fox's Super Bowl this year, with Jennifer Lopez and Shakira, like, I don't think and I could be wrong I don't think that your average hardcore Jennifer Lopez fan also sits and watches eight hours of NFL every day so in theory that kind of selection also brings in the potential for a larger audience that might not otherwise be consuming the Super Bowl that's a that's a decent thesis I would imagine right
6: yeah I think that's exactly right I think that's what we
5: hope happens uh okay so leaving behind uh the Super Bowl for a second uh, there are a lot of things going on in the world of entertainment sports, media business, everything else. Uh, gambling is starting to grow uh, you 've got all of this different proliferation as we 've mentioned before of different channels of different uh, different aspects of entertainment options that are out there. If you had a billion dollars let 's say you had a billion dollars right now and you had okay. to invest you had to invest it in an aspect of sports. And I always like to add, like, think about questions like these because, for instance, if we've been having this conversation 50 years ago and we've been talking about the three most popular sports in the world right then would have been baseball, horse racing, and boxing, right? And you mm-hmm. could have been like, I'm gonna, I know you still love, uh, I know you still love horse racing and everything else, but if you had a billion dollars, pretend we're having this conversation 50 years from now. What would you have wanted to put that billion into that you think would be much more popular 50 years from now or at least as popular or grow at a great rate where are we headed if you had to project
6: Uh, I'm going to give you a really boring answer which is that I would put that money into an NFL team uh, recognizing that the irony in that answer is that you can't even buy an NFL team for a billion dollars so you'd probably be looking at buying you're that bullish
5: (laughs) bullish, though on the NFL because some people would say oh I'm not bullish on the NFL you would put a billion into the NFL right now
6: I would put a billion into owning, you know, a third to half of an NFL franchise. I think that if you had that kind of money to invest, um, the, the part of the business where you, that you would want to be on is team ownership. You know, there's obviously a lot of volatility and uncertainty in the media side of the business. Um, I like where we are, given that our brand is built on premium live content. I think it leaves us, it leaves Fox really well positioned for the next, say, 10 years. Uh, but I think the safest bet is to be on the team ownership side and be providing the content to that changing and uncertain uh, media environment. And in the case of the NFL, I think that, uh, look, this is a very well-established trend that every year the viewership and therefore the value of the NFL separates itself further and further from everything else that's out there uh, on TV. So It's not necessarily a a very creative answer. It would probably be more interesting to say that you would invest in um, a gambling company or in e-sports or in some of the things that are um, more rapidly emerging and maybe are a little sexier to people. Uh, But I think the correct answer is an NFL team.
4: Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com.
3: I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: We're talking to Mike Mulvahill. I'm Clay Travis, wins and losses. Your first reaction when, they, when you heard that Fox might be interested in the WWE was what?
6: Oh, I love it. I, I think it's incredibly exciting. Um, I love that we are getting into a sports entertainment business. Um, I think it's great for us in prime time on the broadcast network, uh, and I think we're getting into business with an executive uh, in Vince McMahon and an organization that understands showmanship and understands television uh, as well or better than any other organization in sports or entertainment. So I think it's really exciting, and I, I can't wait to go to Staples tomorrow and see our first show.
5: I mean, it's going to be pretty cool that Hulk Hogan and The Rock are there, right?
6: yeah it's going to be amazing i mean i think it's going to be for for a casual observer of wwe it's going to be practically everybody that you've ever been familiar with uh since going to the academy awards of wrestling
5: uh okay let's go to you mentioned brands and how valuable they are in terms of producing audiences in the world of sports how much are individual opinion maker brands valuable in other words Colin Cowherd is now at Fox. You've got Skip Bayless at Fox. Both of those guys came over from ESPN and have brought pretty substantial audiences for uh, themselves that are quite a bit more than we're watching other programming on at the same time. Is the value of those brands in the opinion business going up in your mind relative to, again, with the same issue of noise that's out there? It's hard to cut through. Do you think that is also true? In the opinion space. And by the way, it could probably be true in the opinion space of sports and also certainly would be true in the opinion space of news where it's hard to cut through and create kind of an an audience. And once you have, is there value there over and above maybe than what you would have anticipated?
6: Sure. I don't think we would be investing in the talent that you just mentioned if we didn't believe that um, opinion-driven programming was valuable and likely to increase in value. I mean, this is a business that is always going to be driven first and last by the events, right? And we can never lose sight of that. Like, what really drives this business is having the rights to the games. Um, And when we have an exclusive right to a game, it's the only thing we can deliver to an audience that nobody else can deliver. Uh, and so we always have to have that as our, our top priority. But having said that, you know, it's a reality that. On Fox Sports 1, on ESPN, on ESPN2, we've got 8,760 hours of programming to fill every year. And that's airtime that our distributors are paying us for, that consumers are paying for through their monthly cable or satellite bill. um, And it's got to be filled with something compelling. And so when you have um, what we sometimes call an opinionist who can fill a high volume of hours with something that is entertaining and watchable. I mean, I I think there's incredible value there. I mean, I know you're doing a radio show every day. You're doing Lock It In With Us on FS1. You're doing this podcast. You're writing. You know, you, you kind of position yourself as an individual who is also a content factory. And I think once we get away from the live games, A lot of the other programming becomes a volume play. You know, you really are looking for people who can be a content factory, who have the ability to sit in a studio and provide watchable content for three or four hours a day, which will get you to maybe 1,500 or 2,000 hours a year of that time that you need to account for, I think those people have unbelievable value, and it is a really rare and special skill set. I know that, you know, it's easy to be cynical about some of that programming. Uh, It's easy to be sarcastic about it. Um, But it is a unique ability to be able to sit in a studio and talk about sports, competently and entertainingly for three hours every day not a lot of people can do it and they have great value
5: yeah it is interesting when you mention it because it's it's almost like a pitcher who's going to give you a huge number of innings right like this guy's going to give me 200 innings because what did you say 8,760 hours of programming I mean when you think about a guy like Cowherd who is doing three hours of live radio I'm doing three hours of radio too but three hours of radio on television that's compelling and rates well I mean, that's an awful lot of just minute audience hours, right?
6: Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, that's also the reason why I believe the Today Show and Good Morning America are the highest revenue generating shows on television. They they may not be as highly rated on an average minute basis as something in primetime or as an NFL game, but they're on 15 hours a week, 20 hours a week, every week, and they're just churning out an enormous volume of sellable content. And uh, just the same way that it's rare to be able to do that on the sports side for three hours a day, it's rare to be able to fill those three hours on a network morning show every day. And that's, that's why those people are worth what they're worth.
5: The data that you look at has probably never been more available in terms of your ability to actually get it but sometimes it's got to feel like you're trying to drink from a fire hose in terms of all of that data that's coming at you. How do you distinguish between the signal and a noise, like something that is just creating a lot of noise versus something that actually matters?
6: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I think that you're right. I mean, we are overwhelmed by data. Um, I, I think sometimes there's a a perception. it's not just a perception, it's a reality that television is at a data disadvantage compared to a tech company like Google or, or Amazon. And yet, even if we are at a data disadvantage, we're still getting far more data every single day than we could ever really process and make use of. And so what you really need are people who can separate the signal from the noise and take all that data and sort of massage it into a narrative that makes sense to content partners, to advertisers, to press, to all the constituencies that we deal with. I mean, I I work in an analytics department, and I think there's an assumption that the people who work for me should be uh, mathematic geniuses, and it's actually not necessary. It's helpful to have an aptitude for the numbers, obviously, but what you really need are storytellers. You know, what you really need are people who can sift through all that data and come up with a handful of data points that you can string together into a narrative about a sport or about our company or about where this business is going that resonates and makes intuitive sense to people. Um, and I think that's surprising. To, when I, I say that you know, pretty frequently, and I think it's sometimes surprising to people um, to hear me say that I don't necessarily need numbers people. I need people who can put data points together into a story that, that adds up to something meaningful.
5: As part of all that noise, and I'm fascinated by that too, because you have to, it's almost like you have to test hypotheses, right? I mean, how often do you look at something, say, hey, I wonder if this might be what's going on and kind of test it for a couple of weeks, right? Or longer to try to figure out whether the data is just noisy and it's not necessarily reflecting or causation is an issue and everything else, because stories are constantly evolving. Your story to explain the data has to evolve in some ways too, right?
6: Yeah, and I, we do experiment sometimes, whether that's experimentation with where a show airs or, um, you know, in the case of the NFL, where we regionalize games and we're assigning a game to 200 different markets all over the country, we, we might say, well, let's just see what happens if we put this team into this market up against this competition. Let's see what we find out. Yeah, you know, I've been working for Fox now for over 20 years, as you know, hard to believe as that is. Uh, and I feel like I'm constantly learning new ways of thinking about programming. And the only way to learn those things is to try things on the air that you haven't tried before.
5: When you look at uh, all the noise of social media, beneficial Mm -hmm. or negative overall to the business of what you do? Uh, Because you may have a hypothesis and the narrative can be accurate. It can be inaccurate. You can see, uh, you know, it can lead to the spread of accurate, inaccurate information. Do you pay attention at all to social media in terms of looking at the data, or do you have so much data that you don't need more opinion?
6: Um, I don't pay much attention to social media in terms of audience feedback. I mean, I feel like the most useful insights that I can glean, I'm typically getting from the Nielsen data set. Um, I do scroll through Twitter obsessively. I'm on it way too much, so I can't claim to not pay attention to it. Um, But I tend to value the insights of the Nielsen ratings over the insights that you're getting anecdotally um, from Twitter. Now, there's another way of talking about social media, which is rather than using it as a gauge of public opinion, you know, I feel like I've been able to use it um, as a way to get the data out there into this never-ending conversation that's happening uh, on Twitter specifically about our business and about sports. I mean, I think Twitter has become... Absolutely fascinating as an endless incubator uh, of ideas and a place to just pressure test ideas that you have about where our business is going, what's working, what's not working it's interesting sometimes to float a data point out uh, via Twitter and just see what sticks, what do people respond to, or what do people push back on and reject. Um, I think it's become a really fascinating laboratory for ideas that then can harden into conventional wisdom. And that's a really new dynamic. I think that, you know, you're even more active on Twitter than I am. I'm sure you've observed that um, probably more frequently than I do. But it's fascinating to see how an idea can be debated and pressure tested on social media and then make its way into more traditional media and then once it does make its way into more traditional media it becomes conventional wisdom
5: I'm fascinated by it and and I don't ever know how representative any kind of story is Uh, for instance in my audience we know that At least according to data, like Twitter's going to skew young, it's going to skew liberal, it's going to skew, you know, probably coastal more than its middle part of the country. But what I love is just using it as a resource, even with those flaws. When I'm up in the morning doing my radio show and we come up with an interesting poll question, I love just to see the results, right? Like if 25,000 people are going to vote on something, uh, I just genuinely love seeing what they're going to say and also love thinking when I'm going expecting to get an answer one way and it goes the other way, right? Like whether my needle is accurate in terms of what my anticipation is. Now, uh, I'm curious here. I've only got a couple more questions for you because I know how busy you are.
4: Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.
3: I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: Uh, we're talking to Mike Mulvihill. I'm Clay Travis. This is a Wins and Losses podcast. I have a theory, thesis, hypothesis, whatever you want to call it, that we're in the middle of a major paradigm shift in the world of sports media in particular. And I think we've had several of these over, I would say, the last 40 years. The first was cable. I think cable changed everything in terms of the way that you consume sports. I think a secondary major impact was fantasy football, which I think drove football in general to different heights of popularity than it had ever seen before. I think the third major paradigm shift that we're going to see is gambling. Would you buy into those being the three kind of seminal events of the last 35 to 40 years of the sports industry? Would you add any others And do you think that gambling is going to be as transformative as I believe it will in terms of the way sports are covered?
6: Let's go through those three again. One was cable TV, right? Then the last one was gambling. And then what was the one in between?
5: I think fantasy football, but fantasy sports in general really changed. I I think, in my opinion, this is my thesis. You may have data that says I'm an idiot for this. I think that the reason why the NFL suddenly skyrocketed and I believe the data reflects this in the mid to late 90s and continued on its upward trajectory so rapidly was fantasy football became so popular that people liked the NFL already, but suddenly you had a reason to watch every game with a stake in that game, right? I'm playing against somebody. I want to see how this running back does. I need a touchdown to win my week. I'm in a high stakes fantasy football league that I'm embarrassed how much we're all putting into this thing. And I was like hitting refresh maniacally during Monday Night Football to see whether or not I was going to beat the guy that I was playing against, right? And by the way, Furman and Sal from our show Lock It In are in that same league, and we spend a decent amount of time talking about how that league's going because there's a lot of money at stake, right? And I I already am watching NFL games obsessively, but it makes me care more, and it made me care more back in 95 and 96 when suddenly I could start to play it on the internet with my buddies, and I think that's a big driver for NFL, and I think gambling's going to be similar, because it gives you a stake, and anytime you can create a interest or a incentive or a, a connection with a viewer, I think it drives up interest whether it's fifty bucks twenty bucks or the potential to win a hundred thousand dollars in a 25 team parlay I think that all matters in a big way very beneficial for sports
6: so I would agree with each of the three that you mentioned. And then if we were going to talk about potentially a fourth, I think you would have to look at the evolution of facility construction and how much uh, more advanced the the venues and the buildings that we go to to watch sports are today compared to where they were 30 or 40 years ago. I just got done reading uh, an awesome book called Ballpark um, by a guy who's a Pulitzer Prize winning architecture critic. And so he's talking about ballpark park construction through the lens of um, architecture and architecture criticism and really thinking about it in a a thoughtful way. And there was this great anecdote in that book where um, George Will was putting forward the idea that... The three most significant things that have happened to baseball in the post-war decades are integration, free agency, and the construction of Camden Yards. Like That's huh. a really interesting idea, yeah. and it speaks to three things that are so fundamental to the business of baseball. It's all about who's allowed to play. Who are you allowed to play for, and where are we going to play the games, right? And I think that the building of Camden Yards and the, the generation of ballparks that it led to um, has fundamentally changed the way that we experience baseball. It's made the experience of going to a game – Um, I think more palatable for somebody who wants to bring their family or wants to bring their kids or maybe go on a date to a game. Um, The experience is just so much more comfortable and entertainment driven. And with that obviously comes a higher price point. And maybe some of those people who were passionate fans and regular attendees um, at facilities 30 or 40 years ago now can't afford to go to a game. That changes the nature of the event. But I think it's not just baseball. I mean, clearly, you know, you go to NFL stadiums and it's mind-boggling to me the amenities that we have um, in the more recent construction. The same is true with NBA arenas. And so I think facility construction would also have to be part of that conversation about things that have been transformational in sports. But that's kind of a tangent. To get back to your point about gambling, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, having the job that I have, I've felt for years that the two most impactful things that could happen to sports television would be for out-of-home television viewing to be included in the ratings. Well, that's now going to happen. You know, and a year for people from out now, there who,
5: like, that's when you go to a bar or you're, you know, like, out in a public venue, right?
6: Correct. So all the viewing of sports that you do in a bar, in a hotel room, maybe there's a TV set in your place of business or you're in an airport, all of that viewing will now be able to be captured by Nielsen and counted in the viewership metrics that we sell to our advertisers. So that's a seismic change. So that's one of what I felt like could be the two biggest changes to our business. And the other, obviously, is the legalization of gambling. And I think we're just at the beginning of that transformation. There are so many more more states still to um, figure out what their way forward is going to be in terms of legalization. But we've developed our participation in the gaming space in the expectation that five to 10 years from now, you might have 30-ish states representing roughly two-thirds of the country that will have some form of legal sports wagering. And when that comes, it's going to make the television product so much more engaging and so much more compelling to somebody who has a small wager on the game. And we're not talking about people who are going to quit their jobs and become professional sports gamblers but we're talking about people who are passionate philadelphia eagles fans and they may find that their enjoyment of the game is amplified just a little bit by having 10 or 20 dollars on the outcome of this sunday's eagles game And i think that's the kind of audience where the the opportunity really lies
5: how important is it for your job for you to be intellectually curious about things other than sports
6: Uh, I I would like to think that it is important. You know, I'd like to think that you're able to glean insights from other interests um, that might be relevant to uh, the job that we do here every day. Um, I just got done reading a really interesting book um, called How Music Works by David Byrne, who, you know, fronted talking heads for a lot of years, and so much of what he had to say about the nature of performance and the nature of a mass audience coming together to have a share experience in a club or in a concert hall was so interesting and so applicable to the nature of live sports and the nature of the events that we televise, you know, every day. So you want to believe that if you have some curiosity about things outside of the world of sports, that curiosity will lead you to places that you can then bring back to this job. Um, That's the way I try to approach it anyway.
5: Yeah, I always tell people that the best way to, I think, have creative ideas is to experience a variety of creative disciplines. So it doesn't mean that you have to be an expert in something else, but you have to be intellectually curious enough to think outside of whatever realm you're involved in to me to allow you to make connections that are bigger than whatever you're involved in. Does that make sense? Like there is, in my opinion, uh, I I tell people all the time, if there's a, a high school kid listening right now to our conversation and he wants one day to have the job that you have or the job that I have, I say you got to read as much as you can. And it doesn't necessarily need to be everything about the world of sports because I think everybody has been out to a dinner party or you've got a friend, and a lot of times he's a guy who all he can talk about is sports. And I'll just see like my wife's eyes roll, (laughs) you know, because you're out at dinner and it's like, it's a really nitty gritty sports conversation that you're in the middle of. You know, like you're analyzing four star linebackers from uh, the state of Georgia compared to the state of Alabama. And there's a small subset of people that care about that, but it's probably not everybody who's sitting around a dinner table, right? And so there's, a, there's an ability, I think, if you're a generalist in some sense of the word, to be able to be interested in a lot of different things, to recognize maybe connections in the world of sports and beyond that others wouldn't see if they're obsessed with one particular thing.
6: Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's really relevant to my job and to the people that I work with because we are a data analytics department and it's very easily, it's very easy to fall into a trap of making it all about the data. You know, you have to remember that the data is only relevant in that it's a language that we can use to talk about things that are really difficult to quantify. You know, the things that really make this business work are the feeling that you get when you have a shared experience at a game with somebody that... matters to you or the feeling that you get when your favorite team wins a championship. You can't put a number to that, um, but the ratings and the attendance metrics and the revenue metrics allow us to sort of approximate what those things mean to people. If you ever become so narrow-minded and and short-sighted as to make it all about the numbers and you lose sight of the emotions and the experiences that those numbers represent, you're done. You're lost. You, You always have to remember that it's about the experiences. It's about the feelings that sports generate. And the ratings are just a shorthand for us to talk about it.
5: We watched the Alabama-Clemson game together. Speaking of the environment of stadiums, you were talking about reading about the geography of stadiums in a suite that allowed you to get your DNA tested. Now, it's San Francisco. <laughs> you remember that? Like how incredible yeah, I do. that was. Yeah. Now, it wasn't open <laughs> while we were there, but I was like, I can't even believe that something like this exists. And I know you do it and I do it too and I think it's instructive and helpful for a lot of people out there. Every now and then it's important to just pinch yourself and make yourself realize that this is what you do for a living because I don't I don't think it matters what your job is. At some point in time you can get so immersed in that job that you forget how excited you would have been to have that job if you'd been talking to yourself 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 30 years ago. How important is that to you uh, to be able to almost, uh, what I like to say is, uh, the illusion of the first time, right? Actors and actresses, it's all about being able to come out on the stage, even if they've done the same play a hundred times, and sell you on the idea that they're doing it for the first time to present something fresh. Do you think about things like that in, in, in your endeavor?
6: Yeah, I think about it constantly. And really, literally, just before we taped this podcast, I was walking back from a session that we did here on the Fox lot, where our president, Eric Shanks, was interviewing Vince McMahon in advance of our WWE premiere tomorrow night. And I was walking back over here with Charlie Dixon, the guy who you know well. He's responsible for all our studio programming on FS1. And we were having exactly this conversation that... It's amazing that Vince is able to retain his sense of showmanship and his sense of what will please an audience. And it got us talking about what excites us as people who have been in this business for a number of years now and how excited we still get when we launch a new property or a new show or we get to go to a Super Bowl. And you never lose that um, astonishment that somebody actually pays you to do this. I mean, it's just incredible. And I said to him, just on the way over here, if you ever lose that sense, that you get up on Super Bowl Sunday and you can't believe that you actually get to do this for a living, you have to quit. You have to move on and just go do something else because you've lost it. When you become one of those people who, for whom it is only about this game did an 8 rating this year and a 9 rating last year, and you've lost your connection to the event itself and the sense of wonder and excitement and happiness that it brings to the tens of millions of people who care about this stuff, you, then you're of no use to this company. You have to maintain your connection to that.
5: Outstanding stuff. How can people find you on social media and see what your, the information that you're putting out there on a regular basis?
6: Uh, I'm on Twitter. and I'm, I'm on it 18 hours a day. Uh, my <laughs> handle is at Malvahill79. The 79 is a reference to the 79 Pittsburgh Pirates team that won the World Series. And uh, I love having new followers. I love interacting pe- with people who have any curiosity about this business. So come check us out.
5: Uh and um and and I appreciate that at Mulvahill seventy nine. Uh go make sure you check him out because you're gonna get a lot of great information there. I know you're a busy guy. I appreciate the time today and uh look forward to uh to people being able to experience and see what you do for a living.
6: Thanks, man. Really enjoyed
5: it. That's Michael Mulvahill. I'm Clay Travis. You've been listening to the Wins and Losses podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, there's a lot more you'll enjoy as well. Go listen and subscribe. Appreciate y'all. Fox
4: Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live.